It's Tuesday, October 26th, and you've got Oz in your ears. It's Radio Free Oz, and it's Radio Free Oz now. In the sign of Scorpio. Don't do a lot of astrology on this show, but suddenly realize we're out of Libra, we're into Scorpio, and you can almost feel it as the light darkens. What do you say, Dave? True, true? Oh, yeah, definitely true. It's the, uh, the, the, it's all, the sex stuff is coming up, though. It's Scorpio that begins to get the, you know, the opposite to the darkening of the light is the brightening of, uh, of, the, of the sexual, sexual, the dragon rises up the spine. There and you all, go, all, all that stuff. All of that. First chakra. Yeah, uh, second yeah, yeah. chakra. I'll yeah, meet yeah. you at the third chakra. We'll have a, <laughs> we'll have a cup of energy. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. It, it, it's a good time when it's dark to light it up. It's quite true. That's it. And uh, anything new happening for you uh, since I saw you yesterday? Well, gee, Uncle Pete, um, here on the island, not a lot goes on. No, uh, let's see. Uh, it's been... Um it's been quiet at my house over the weekend. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, this is not the interesting part of the show. I, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think you're going to get much out of this. This is not the, int- how dare you? Well, this is not the interesting well, I, part of the show. I, I, People, we're losing podcasters as we speak. We're shedding they, them they as they're running oh, wow, off to more interesting, this. beguiling hey. places. Yeah, yeah, yeah Why yeah. don't you just bring the sheriff in? He's always interesting. Axe Handle, come here and sit down. This guy doesn't <laughs> think it's anything. Now, there oh, must be some fascinating stuff on the yeah, island. An incredible person. He doesn't have no idea what's going on. Well, well why yeah. don't you tell us? Uh, <clears throat> well, I haven't been here for a while, Mr. Bergman. But, I know. Uh, 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 it's back on October 1st that I'm I'm reading from here. So it's been a few weeks Island since history. I got to you. Yes, yeah. sir. On October 1st. I, I, I'm I, I'm kind of embarrassed. to. What's that? Well, it makes me pause and hesitate here a little bit before I tell you this item. Uh, at 4.44 p.m. in the afternoon, a caller reported a man, um, uh, he was masturbating yeah. at a bus stop. Well, okay. On Highway 525 and Storkson Drive. That's what he was doing. Well, that's it. called municipal masturbation. You know, He wasn't in the forest doing like Nature Boy. No. He was doing his, civ- his he saw it, his civic duty. Yeah, well, it's better than doing it on the bus. That's what we thought. We yeah. could never find him. At 525, a man and a woman were fighting on the side of the of the highway right there near Classic Road. Yeah. Just fighting there on the highway. Uh, next day, nothing on Saturday. Some fireworks, dead deer, you know, things that, like that. that. Sort of but thing. Sunday, a woman on Cultus Bay Road said her nephew was playing his music too loud. Wow. Now, now, don't be surprised if I tell you that at 9.05 in the morning, just not even two hours later, a man said his cousin tried to run him off the road near Cultus Bay. I think he was driven mad by the rock and, and roll. And, and the corner of Cultus Bay and Bailey. He said he was supposed to be going to church, but it looked like he didn't go. Well, no, man. That's, he was rocking out with the nephew. He, and, you know, on Monday... A caller on Cultus Bay Road said a cousin hit the caller's truck with a bat. Uh, poor little bat. We got laws that prevent cruelty to bats, by the way, on this island. Now, okay, yeah, it's, it's called only- the Mariners. They rarely use them. <laughs> I see you're in our sports scene here. Hardly, yes. Well, there's not much use going there, is there? Okay, I only got a couple more of these for you. On Thursday at 9.29 in the morning, campaign signs were stolen from two locations on Glendale Road and Roseberry Street. 
The thief was described as a small woman in her 40s with shoulder-length dark hair in a small red truck. That's the best description we got all week. Yeah. Think if we had that of the masturbating man. Yeah, right. I'm telling you, it would be uh, down to too many details for me. Uh, yes. Yes, so that's it. Oh, that's it, and here's the last item okay. for you. I'm faster. Thursday, I'm, I'm, I'm jaw-dropping here. Thursday, it's a whole week, uh, uh, the first week of October, and this is how it ends. A caller said a neighbor on Zigzag Lane uh-huh, uh, had been shooting guns and may also be drinking. Now, the caller just wanted uh, us to check around to make sure that uh, the good old boys on Zigzag there were shooting, you know, uh, carefully, as twere, Not at each other and certainly not at the guy who called us up. Life on Zigzag Lane, that's about it for you, Mr. Bergman. Uh, well, that's 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 Radio Free Oz zigzagging for you at the top of the show. See there, Dave, I told you there was some interesting stuff going on. Uh, I, I didn't believe you, but, you know, it's windy. Let's do the math. We're down 11.5 million jobs since 2008 and won't replace them for 20 years. Official unemployment is hovering around 10%, and actual unemployment is closer to 18%. Municipalities and states, perched on bankruptcy, are shedding cradle-to-grave jobs. The infrastructure is crumbling, the public school system is in crisis, and foreclosures are at an all-time high. Corporate America has chosen to sit on $1.5 trillion in cash rather than invest in our economy. Just think what $2 billion a week would do to change the math. $2 billion, that's what we're spending every week in Afghanistan. It might be worth the sacrifice if $2 billion a week were bringing democracy with all its bells and whistles to Afghanistan, suppressing its heroin trade, and securing the country from the local jihadists who stone women and behead villagers to satisfy their thirst for power and sexual domination. It isn't buying any of that. Proof positive is the recent admission by our secretaries of state and defense that the U.S. is facilitating talks between the Taliban and what's left of Karzai's government. Our nine-year occupation of Afghanistan has been a failure. All that blood and treasure for nothing. When we leave Afghanistan and sneak back home, that country will be a lot worse off than when we charged in post-9-11. Back then, the Taliban were contained in the Kandahar region by Massoud's Northern Alliance and a relatively stable regime in Kabul. Now those vicious freaks are everywhere. What we'll leave behind is anarchy, the same gift we're leaving behind in Iraq. And we'll come home to anarchy. Where are we going to find jobs for 100,000 shell-shocked GIs? What have we got here for the other 100,000 contract mercenaries to guard? The empire is collapsing, simply because we can't afford it. So, we redo the math. We beat our swords into solar panels and do a hell of a lot more with a hell of a lot less. We learn to live with the reality that other cultures aren't a failed attempt at being us, and we get straight with the fact that nation-building begins at home. Oh, this could be a doozy. So we've got like a really bad economic situation because of the bursting of the housing bubble, which was corrupt, basically putting uh, 
people who didn't know what they were doing, giving them mortgages they couldn't afford, taking those mortgage packages and turning them into corrupt instruments. Okay, that's one thing. That's bad enough. But now it appears that the banks are equally corrupt in foreclosing on the very garbage that they sold and resold. And this could be huge. They're calling it foreclosure gate. From Time Magazine, the bank's tab from the housing bust is set to get a lot bigger. In the past few weeks, state attorneys general and lawyers representing borrowers in danger of losing their homes have uncovered a number of certainly dubious, potentially fraudulent practices relating to the way banks have been processing foreclosures. On Sunday, HUD Secretary Sean Donovan said the recent revelations about foreclosure processing, that some banks may be repossessing the homes of families improperly, has rightly outraged the American people. The notion that many of the very same institutions that helped create this housing crisis may well be making it worse is not only frustrating, it's shameful. The revelations, which include lost documents and lying on court records, started to surface in mid-September. But a month after the start of foreclosure gate, some people are now uh, calling them fraud closures, and it's still not clear how bad or how big this scandal really is. But what is clear is that foreclosure gate will end up resulting in huge new losses for the banks, potentially tens of billions, and here's how. So, just how bad is foreclosure gate. Thomas Martin runs something called America's Watchdog and has long been crusading about the bogus fees that banks and title companies charge people who take out a mortgage. He's not usually one to overlook bad behavior, especially when it comes to taking advantage of borrowers. How much of a scandal is foreclosure gate? On a scale of 1 to 10, he said 5, possibly 6. Yes, the banks and their lawyers may have forged documents in order to complete foreclosures on homeowners, but many of these people weren't paying their mortgages anyway, so they're going to be in foreclosure anyway. Ah, I recently got a call from a woman in Atlanta, he said, who has never made a mortgage payment in five years, and she was outraged and said Chase was racist because they were trying to foreclose on her, says Martin. Kathleen Day at the Center for Responsible Lending, would put the scandal closer to a 10. The foreclosure processes at the banks were so bad, there have been a few instances where the banks have forged documents and pushed through foreclosures on houses where people have never missed a payment. But mad mistakes like that are not the point. She says that no one should have their stuff taken away from them illegally. There are rules around foreclosures meant to protect borrowers, and everyone deserves the same protection under the law, even if they have been late on their mortgage. So, on the scandal scale, is this Martha Stewart or Enron? Well, here are the facts that we know. When the housing bubble was going up, banks made thousands of mortgage loans, or often they bought loans from mortgage brokers who made them directly to consumers. Banks would then take those mortgage loans and bundle them up into bonds that they would then sell to investors, passing the monthly payments of borrowers over to these new owners of the mortgages. To make all this work, the banks had to file and retain paperwork that transferred the ownership of the mortgages from the original lenders to the new investors. Well, it appears the banks bungled that process, or at the very least in a number of cases, and in many potential cases, they lost the paperwork. Okay, that's part one. Part two. Instead of owning up to the fact that they had messed up or lost the paperwork on thousands, maybe millions of mortgages... Where did they lose all this paperwork? This is vital paperwork. How did they lose it? Did they lose it in the shredder? 
Anyway, the banks tried to cover it up. When borrowers stopped making payments and the banks wanted to foreclose on the properties, the banks hired low-level employees to sign and file affidavits, hundreds of thousands of them, with the courts all around the country attesting to the fact that they had reviewed the loans and they could prove their employer the banks were the rightful owners. This is sheer fraud. The only problem is that they didn't and couldn't. In the past few weeks, it has come out that the so-called robo-signers, who are now being questioned by authorities, knew very little about the mortgages they signed off on or mortgages in general. Some couldn't define the word affidavit. They probably thought it was a biblical name. At first, this may look like a minor paperwork problem. No, at first, it doesn't look to me like that at all. So, it could be a Martha Stewart-type scandal. But once you dig a little deeper, you can start to construct something that seems a little more nefarious. A lot more nefarious. For months, borrowers have been complaining about how difficult it is to get a bank to modify their loans. The mortgage helplines are overwhelmed. The bank processors ask for documents two or three times. Often it's hard to get the same person on the phone. This all seemed like the problem of a system not ready to deal with the hundreds of thousands of borrowers who, because of the Great Recession, were suddenly having problems paying their home loans. But what if the banks were just using their modification attempts as a means to distract borrowers so they wouldn't realize that they were filing phony documents at the courthouse to kick them out? And here's the real kicker. Some observers are now saying that the banks may have purposely lost the loan documents in order to mislead investors. You think so? You think those banks could do that? Those lily white guys, those boys and girl scouts, you still have to ask yourself, how did they lose millions of key documents? I don't know. They were here just a while ago. The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission recently found that the banks hired firms to evaluate the mortgages they were considering buying and found many of them unworthy, meaning there was a high chance they would default. So did the banks not buy these loans? No! They bought the risky loans at a discount and then passed those loans off to investors at full face value, scooping up more profits for the banks. They bought the garbage and they sold it as fresh food. Then they destroyed the paperwork so the investors couldn't figure out what had happened. Sounds Enron-like, hmm? How much will this cost the banks? Already three banks, Bank of America, Ali's GMAC and J.P. Morgan Chase have temporarily stopped foreclosures in many parts of the country. Analyst Paul Miller, who covers the banks at FBR Capital Markets, says reviewing and correcting the faulty mortgages will cost banks $2 billion for every month that foreclosures are delayed. He thinks the process could take the rest of the year and puts the final bill at $6 billion. But that's if the banks are eventually able to prove they own the loans and are mostly exonerated for lying to the courts. If instead the banks don't have the necessary paperwork on most loans and are found to have committed widespread fraud to hide the fact, then they may be forced into a mass settlement. One possibility, the banks agree to cut the loan balances for borrowers and give the money to investors. Reducing the loan amounts would lower the borrower's monthly payments and also put many borrowers in a position where they no longer owe more than the house is worth. Defaults would fall, making investors happy. But if it turns out that the banks committed widespread fraud on the investors of mortgage bonds, then we could be looking at another financial crisis. Ooh, yeah. 
forcing the banks to buy back all the loans they duped the investors on and are now in default or have already gone to foreclosure would cost hundreds of billions, if not trillions. The bailouts would be back. It seems clear that we have already found out in the early stages of foreclosure gate that the bank's behavior was pretty bad. Let's not hope it was as bad as some people think. Can you imagine the entire um, um, country of Iceland coming back to the Bank of America or GMAC and said, give us our money back. You cheated us, mofo. And all those towns in Norway that went down and all the people that lost their money because of these toxic bonds, if they come back after the banks, ooh-wee!
hours later my daddy was dead The company's been good to us was all my mama said Here comes foreclosure gate. I love it. At a large Florida foreclosure mill, a manager signed up to a thousand documents a day without reading them, and employees were given gifts to speed up foreclosure paperwork, according to depositions released today by the Florida Attorney General's Office. The news, also reported by Tampa Online, comes as Bank of America, the nation's largest bank by assets, announced that it would resume more than 100,000 foreclosures in 23 states after an internal investigation of its practices. Florida authorities are investigating the law offices of David J. Stern over how it handled foreclosure paperwork. And this is a beauty. As the AP notes, Cheryl Sammons, an office manager at the law offices of David Stern, would sign 500 files in the morning and another 500 files in the afternoon without reviewing them and with no witnesses, according to Kelly Scott, a former assistant at the firm. The perks for good performance were considerable, according to Scott's statement. Tampa Online notes office employees were lavished with gifts. As a perk of Salmon's job, Stern's office would routinely pay her personal mortgage, a car payment, her electric bills, and her cell phone bill, according to Scott, who told investigator Stern also bought Salmon's a new BMW sport utility vehicle every year and gave her and other employees jewelry. Ah, foreclosure bling! Additionally, Stern purchased employee David Vargas a house, a car, and a cell phone, Scott claims in her statement. According to Kelly Scott's statement, Shell Ramos's marathon document signing sessions took place in an office conference room and would leave her wearied. From Scott's description, they would be stacked amongst each other side by side and Cheryl would come twice a day in the morning and mid-afternoon around 2 or 3 o'clock and she would sign all of them, every single one of them. Cheryl would give certain paralegals rights to sign her name because most of the time she was very tired, exhausted from signing her name numerous times per day. The poor dear, maybe it was all the bling on her fingers were weighing her down. You had to understand it was more than 500 files that she was signing morning and afternoon. David Stern had an especially close relationship with the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Scott said in her statement, the lenders were considered his babies. Scott said employees would change codes to hide files when their representatives visited the office. 
Oh, this is a beauty. <laughs> Foreclosure gate and bling. I love it. Scream change, 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 change what? From the New York Times. Google and a New York financial firm have each agreed to invest heavily in a proposed $5 billion transmission backbone for future offshore wind farms along the Atlantic seaboard that could ultimately transform the region's electrical map. Google! A 350-mile underwater spine, which could remove some critical obstacles to wind power development, has stirred excitement among investors, government officials, and environmentalists who have been briefed on it. Google and Good Energies, an investment firm specializing in renewable energy, have each agreed to take 37.5% of the equity position of the project. They are likely to bring in additional investors, which could reduce their stakes. Conceptually, it looks to me to be one of the most interesting transmission projects that I've ever seen walk through the door, said John Wellinghoff, the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which oversees interstate electricity transmission. It provides a gathering point for offshore wind for multiple projects up and down the coast. Industry experts called the plan promising, but warned that as a first-of-a-kind effort, it was bound to face bureaucratic delays and could run into unforeseen challenges, from technology problems to cost overruns. While several undersea electrical cables exist off the Atlantic coast already, none has ever picked up power from generators along the way. The system's backbone cable, with a capacity of 6,000 megawatts, equal to the output of five large nuclear reactors, would run in shallow trenches on the seabed in federal waters 15 to 20 miles offshore from northern New Jersey to Norfolk, Virginia. The notion would be to harvest energy from turbines in an area where the wind is strong but the hulking towers would barely be visible. Transelect estimated that construction would cost $5 billion plus financing and permit fees. The $1.8 billion first phase, a 150-mile stretch from northern New Jersey to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, could go into service by early 2016, it said. The rest would not be completed until 2021 at the earliest. Yet even before any wind farms were built, the cable would channel existing supplies of electricity from southern Virginia, where it is cheap, to northern New Jersey, where it is costly, passing one of the most congested parts of the North American electric grid while lowering energy costs for northern customers. Generating electricity from offshore wind is far more expensive than relying on coal, natural gas, or even onshore wind. But energy experts anticipate a growing demand for the offshore turbines to meet state requirements for greater reliance on local renewable energy as a clean alternative to fossil fuels. Ultimately, the system, known as the Atlantic Wind Connection, could make building a wind farm offshore far simpler and cheaper than it looks today, experts agree. Environmentalists who have been briefed on the plan were enthusiastic. Melinda Pierce, the deputy director for national campaigns at the Sierra Club, said she had campaigned against proposed transmission lines that would carry coal-fired energy around the country, but would favor this one with its promise of turning uh with its promise of tapping the potential of offshore wind. These kinds of audacious ideas might just be what we need to break through the wretched logjam, she said. The lure of Atlantic wind is very strong. The Atlantic Ocean is relatively shallow, even tens of miles from shore, unlike the Pacific, where the seafloor drops away steeply. Construction is also difficult in the Great Lakes because their waters are deep and they freeze, raising the prospect of moving ice sheets that could damage a tower. Nearly all of the East Coast governors, Republican and Democrat, have spoken enthusiastically about coastal wind and have fought proposals for transmission lines from the other likely wind source, the Great Plains.
Interior Secretary Ken Salazar, whose agency would have to sign off on the project, has spoken approvingly of wind energy and talked about the possibility of an offshore backbone. In a speech this month, he emphasized that the federal waters were controlled by the secretary, meaning him. What blows my mind, besides the fact that this is a fine idea, I mean, may not work as well as they think, but it's that Google is half of the early money. I don't think we have any understanding how big and complicated and amazing Google is. There's a scandal there somewhere because they're also very controlling and they have access to amazing amounts of information. But the fact that they're getting into something as futuristic and necessary as this is a definite Google bonus. I give them their Google juice. Why, hello there, dear friends. I do love the sound of those sweet birds in my ears. Yes, that's right, I'm Reverend Bill Barnstormer, right here at the First Faithiness Church of Science. Fiction. Now today, I want to talk to you about the United Southern States of America, just about to close its borders to people of the left. And you can say thank you for that, that's right. The big word, now the important word in the South is united. Now if the South is united, why wasn't the U.S. united? Well, I'll tell you, because in the South, people all agree that faiths, no matter how ridiculous, should implant ideas in children's heads. Now, if we have faith in our ideas, why not get our ideas from our faiths and say thank you for that, thank you. Now, in the South, everybody has a closet full of guns and enough said about that. You can say thank you under your breath if you like. You know, that's right. They are united in their agreements. Uh, the only question now is should the USSA join with the Free Republic of Texas? And I'd, I'd say yes to that, but Texas wants to rename the USSA into the USST for Texas. Now, now dear friends, what about the, the desire of the SUU? Uh, the sacred Utah Union, and the USKAR, the United Kansans uh, Against Knowledge, to close their borders entirely to non-citizens. Uh, what about that? Uh, uh, so, right now, I say thank you, and let them drive around Kansas and Utah if they can't stay to home, whoever they are. Now, what about, what about poor Indy Cal? broken up into dozens of independent counties, each with its own wine and cheese and drug lords. You know, all you can do in Cal is taste something and, and move on, drive right on. Nobody agrees on anything, because, cause, you know, it's up to your own taste, and can you trust a man whose standards is so low? Well, dear friends, we got everywhere else Obama's Socialist States Republic, the OSSR, clinging on, yes, in a few places. Well, that's okay, and say thank you for that, because it's about time we kept compassionate thinking in its place. 
and the aliens and the artists and the free thinkers all in in their own place where they can't be can't be any trouble so say thank you for that and and say for your thank you gift from me send 29.95 for reverend barnstormer's new map of america showing you all the safe places to live and and build a fantasy uh, build a family just check that frigidaire magnet from my p.o box and my church location and say thank you for that and i'll see you next time Would you expect me to be reading an article by Greg Undelhoffen, the editor of Asphalt Contractor? Well, I guess you wouldn't, but you know, he's on to something interesting. And also, I'm reading this because he is, in a sense, middle America. He is advocating for a, a, you know, a shovel-ready industry, asphalt contracting, all right? And he thinks that Barack Obama's got the right idea. I know he's serving a self-interest, but it's the interest of the country. Listen to this. At a Labor Day speech in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, President Obama rekindled support of a permanent infrastructure bank that would leverage private, state, and local investment in projects critical to the respective area's economic success. While it's a departure from traditional federally funded infrastructure projects, the infrastructure bank concept awards financial support of proposed projects based on what will generate the best return for taxpayers. Legislation for the National Infrastructure Development Bank Act was proposed in uh, 2009 and has been widely supported by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Construction Alliance, Building and Construction Trades Department, American Society of Civil Engineers, and Building America's Future Coalition of Governors and Mayors across the country, to mention a few. All of them into, you know, their own self-interest. They're all involved in the building business, but our infrastructure is crumbling. And this idea of the infrastructure bank is is subtle, and it's a good one. Here he goes. Support of the Infrastructure Bank was part of Obama's recent proposal to create an additional $50 billion stimulus program to rebuild 150,000 miles of road, 4,000 miles of rail, and 150 miles of airport runways, to which, of course, the GOP went, nay! As part of the original American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, funding was earmarked not only for roads and bridges, but also for high-speed rail, clean energy projects, energy-efficient support for schools and government buildings, and broadband investment around the country. The infrastructure bank approach is designed to best leverage that type of funding by identifying projects that will deliver the greatest economic return for a local region. So what we're talking about here is a bank that uses both local, private, and government money for projects that are specific specific to an area to which investors can, can you know, can uh, look for and imagine a real return. It would also help, he says, local regions attract more state and government funding as well as private funding with the resulting benefit being clearly defined. The infrastructure bank creates an investment vehicle that businesses can rally behind because they can analyze how infrastructure improvements would help their growth objectives, giving them added incentive to invest in solutions that strengthen their local economies. I wish that businesses, and by say small businesses, I mean real businesses, not multicorp, you know, multinationals, would understand that the soul of the Democratic Party, the center of the Democratic Party, is right here in things like the infrastructure bank, right? This isn't socialism. This is localism. 
Passing a new multi-year transportation bill is the linchpin to the continued investment we need to make in improving our roads and bridges. But including an infrastructure bank component is a very important element that will encourage private investment based on what will generate the best return for those who invest. And let me tell you, folks, if the, if the Republicans take over the House of Representatives and block all of this legislation, I believe that middle business America over the next couple of years will come to understand just how negative and poisonous a force they are to the future of this country and how much they really hate little business. They hate little business. They love big business because it isn't business. It's manipulation. It's power. It's money. These people that lay asphalt and build the infrastructure actually hire people who put on gloves and dig things and probably dig along with them, or if they haven't, they did when they were a kid. In any case, it's real, buddy. It's real. Allowing private investments in transportation, the environment, energy, and telecommunications infrastructure projects makes sense and will attract investors as long as the government ensures a fair return for the investments made. An infrastructure bank can help solve the funding challenges we face in building and maintaining a quality infrastructure, and I'm excited to see that it once again is receiving the attention it deserves as part of the solution being proposed. Yeah, you know the thing about Obama? There's a touch of Teddy Roosevelt in him. There's no doubt about the fact. He is truly a real American. He is an environmentalist. No, he doesn't hunt. No, he plays basketball. He doesn't hunt. That's his... That's his manly man stuff. In fact, they say he doesn't even really, I think Michelle said, he really doesn't even like to go to Camp David because he's not much of a woodsy type, she says. He's more urban. Well, he understands the asphalt layers problem. He knows what an infrastructure bank is. He cares and he thinks, and most of the Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi and and Harry Reid and all the rest of them, understand where he's going. The Republicans and their fascist buddies are standing in the way. How long that will last, I don't know. The longer it goes, the worse it's going to get. Well, from Politico, more Joe Miller. I mean, how can you not love this guy? If you've got a got a job like mine, you know, schmoozing on the radio and basically trolling the woe, every once in a while you get a guy like this that just keeps delivering. A major upset followed by an avalanche of national media attention. A campaign operation that clearly isn't ready for its moment in the white-hot spotlight. A spate of gaffes followed by a reporter dodging and then an attempt to go radio silent. It's a familiar campaign storyline this year for Tea Party-backed candidates, but Alaska Republican Joe Miller upped the ante this weekend after a bizarre scene in which he hired bodyguards and handcuffed a local journalist. The incident, which Miller's security detail privately arrested Alaska Dispatch editor Tony Hopfinger, is the culmination of several weeks of bad press for the Republican, who now finds himself in a tough race against Democrat Scott McAdams and the Republican he defeated in the primary write-in candidate, Senator Lisa Murkowski. While none of the other major Tea Party candidates have gone so far as to detain a member of the press, the arc of Miller's post-primary experience mirrors that of other GOP Senate nominees, most notably Sharon Angle in Nevada, Rand Paul in Kentucky, and Christine O'Donnell in Delaware. Christine O'Donnell, the one who was surprised. I mean, she was gobsmacked to find out that the separation of church and state was actually in the First Amendment of the Constitution. Woo! 
Like them, until uh, claiming the party nomination, Miller was a long shot unaccustomed to much media attention at all, let alone tough scrutiny from the local and national press. And like the Nevada, Kentucky, and Delaware GOP Senate nominees, his responses have only exacerbated a tense situation. When you're in politics at that level, your heart is an open book. You no longer have the privilege of saying, these areas are private, said Mark Hollenthal, a Republican pollster in Alaska who says he is neutral in the race. I think they made a mistake by not telling all, being an open book and saying they weren't going to talk to reporters any longer on matters that they considered personal and the like, etc., etc. The Alaska press, not the national media, has given Miller the roughest treatment. Earlier this month, the Alaska Dispatch cited an anonymous source who accused Miller of campaigning while on the clock in his official government job as an attorney for the Fairbanks North Star Borough. Miller's former boss, Mayor Jim Whitaker, told the Anchorage Daily News in a follow-up story that the GOP nominee indeed got in trouble for doing political work while on the government job. Whitaker, who said he only came forward because Miller went silent, said the GOP nominee resigned in September of 2009, the day before he was going to be fired. Hmm. That story came after others about how Miller obtained a low-income Alaska fishing license shortly before becoming an attorney and about his wife's receipt of federal unemployment benefits, which Miller has publicly stated should be up to the states, right? Here's the guy, this is the the Tea Party libertarian uh, hypocrite. In addition, Miller has also caught flack for telling a town hall that he favored repealing the 17th Amendment, which allows for the direct election of senators, and has been publicly dinged by the national media for failing to file his financial disclosure forms until more than five months after he started his campaign for Senate. Now, this thing about the 17th Amendment drives me crazy. What does it come from? I mean, what's the problem with direct election by the people of your senators. Like in the old days, it was done by the state legislatures, famous for cronyism and backdoor politics. What is this all about? I'll have to go back and find out. They had some growing pains at Alaska Republican uh, Party Chairman um, Randy Rudrick. It's obviously a very different process. We've been working very closely with a candidate, and I'd say that it's a favorable undertaking. Oh, yeah? Handcuffing the press? That's a favorable undertaking? What? They kept him from shooting him? It appears the unflattering reports have taken a toll on his standing. Hmm. Am I surprised? And that's before Sunday's arrest. After initially leading in post-primary polls, Miller and Murkowski are now in a dead heat, according to the most recent surveys. Erasmussen reports uh, polls taken Wednesday showed Miller with 35%, Murkowski with 34%, and Democrat Scott Adams with 27%. And that's Rasmussen, which is pretty right-wing. This guy has got to get beaten. I mean, Rand Paul is bad enough. I, I believe McDon- uh, Christine is out. The witch just... Just ain't going to make it. But this guy could, because that's a crazy state. I mean, remember, it gave us Sarah Palin. Oh, you yoy. Well, it's Tuesday, and it's Tuesday uh, uh, the 26th, yeah. which means I'm checking my co- comedy calendar right now. <laughs> uh, there are a couple of great cartoon characters who were born on this Wait a minute. day. Cartoon characters aren't... Oh, go ahead. Anthropomorphize yeah, away. Are you kidding? Go ahead. Who are they? Felix the Cat. Yes, if people can remember Felix the Cat. I mean, With I know the- we have an older demographic, but we're talking about digging up I'm the demographic sure for that. I'm pretty sure Felix the Cat 
Cat is still out there. In, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. drawn by those underground cartoonists, there's a Felix the Cat look-alike weirdo on the comedy well, channel. Well, of course, there was, there's a huge Felix the Cat uh, car agency in L.A. that, you know, for, I, I will always remember. Probably again. still there. Probably oh, still okay, there. you know, Felix the Cat too far back. How about Doonesbury? Oh, well, Doonesbury. Now, is this the birthday of the first Doonesbury? Yeah, the first nationally yeah. syndicated 1970 Doonesbury cartoon. Is that when it started, huh? That's it. right in the middle of the whole Nixon brouhaha. Mm-hmm. Ooh, boy. It was a good time to be born. And he's still going, man. That's amazing. Well, we started just a little bit before that, and we're still going. That's true. The fire sign started in 66, and we're going, but he's been turning it out every day. Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, man. And it's good stuff. I mean, it's really good stuff. Words and art. And he's a Yaley, so I'm kind of like oh, happy I see. about that. Yeah, Pat, well, patting him on the back. Yeah, there. but on the other end, George Bush was a Yaley, so I'm going to unpat myself on that. And, you know, pat, pat, unpat, pat. In fact, there's a story I just read, which I didn't do a whole thing on, is that the DKEs, the Deeks at Yale, Yale has a few fraternities, not many. It's got four or five and then secret societies. But the Deeks have been like thoroughly uh, put down and they can't even rush this year because they had their guys chanting outside of one of the girls' dorms or one of the areas something like, no is yes and yes is anal. That's what they were <laughs> chanting. This was a, this is part of their rush procedure. Amazing. No is yes. That, that's enough to get Ariana Falacci or whatever her name is. I mean, she's just going to blow up and, then, yeah, and everybody's yeah, yeah. going to go crazy. And of course, the, there are a lot of people, one of the people in, in one of the girls there said that I see a career in this. You know, I mean, it's like, it's like so they, they, they've been, already in law school. Right. They've, been, yeah. they've been seriously reprimanded for that. You know? Well, you know, they used to used they used to drown freshmen and you know and see if they survived. I mean, all of those fraternities are kind of witch cults anyway, or, of, of one sort of, and the, yeah. and the secret societies. They're called tombs for a reason. When I was there, of course, they were really super secret, and nobody got in. Well, nobody, only guys, yeah, George yeah. W. Bush and a few other people. But you know, and I, and I railed against them. I was, you know, I was the secretary of the Young People's Socialist League, which today puts me slightly right of Bill Clinton. You know. <laughs> But that's all right. That's a big deal. I lost my Fulbright over it. I was a security risk for supporting, what, migratory labor rights or something like that. It's, it's been a great country for a long time. <laughs> I was born an American. I was raised an American. And I'll die an American. In America, with our millions. I think that the people at Walmart were listening to Oz when I interviewed Chef Jess about buying local food. Because according to the New York Times... Walmart stores announced a program this week that focuses on sustainable agriculture among its suppliers as it tries to reduce its overall environmental impact. The program is intended to put more locally grown food in Walmart stores in the United States, invest in training and infrastructure for small and medium-sized farmers, particularly in emerging markets, and begin to measure how effectively large suppliers grow and get their produce into stores. Would you believe it? Advocates of environmentally sustainable farming said the announcement was significant because of Walmart's size and because it would give small farmers a chance at Walmart's business. But they questioned how local, a $405 billion company with 2 million employees, more than the populations of Alaska, Wyoming, and Vermont combined, could be. 
Well, we'll have to see. Given that Walmart is the world's largest grocer with one of the biggest food supply chains, any change it made would have wide implications. Walmart's decision five years ago to, to set sustainability goals that, among other things, increased its reliance on renewable energy and reduced packaging waste among its suppliers sent broad ripples through product manufacturers. Large companies like Procter & Gamble redesigned packages that are now carried by other retailers, while Walmart's measurements of the environmental efficiency of its suppliers helped define how they needed to change. No other retailer has the ability to make more of a difference than Walmart, the retailer's president and chief executive, Michael T. Duke, said. Grocery is more than half of Walmart's business, yet only four of our 39 public sustainable goals addresses food. In the United States, Walmart plans to double the percentage of locally grown produce it sells to 9%. Walmart defines local produce as that grown and sold in the same state. Now, when we talk with Chef Jess, it's stuff made right here on the island. But, you know, for Walmart, they have a, well, they just have a different structure. Still, the program is far less ambitious than in some other countries. In Canada, for instance, Walmart expects to buy 30% of its produce locally by the end of 2013, and when local produce is available, increase that to 100%. Our food business in Canada is brand new, so there's a lot they can do, said Andrea Thomas, Senior Vice President of Sustainability at a news conference. She said the program allowed each country to set its own specific goals. In emerging markets, Walmart has pledged to sell $1 billion worth of food from small and medium farmers, which it defines as farmers with fewer than uh, 50 acres. It will provide training for the farmers and their laborers on how to choose crops that are in demand and on the proper application of water and pesticides. Maybe they can do what Chef Jess does, what they can do a seed order before the season, right, and guarantee the buy. Both in the United States and globally, Walmart will invest more than $1 billion to improve its supply chain for perishable food. For example, if trucks, trains, and distribution centers could help farmers in Minnesota get crops to Walmart more quickly, the result would be less spoiled food, a longer shelf life, and presumably more profit for the farmers and for Walmart. Walmart said it planned to reduce food waste in emerging market stores by 15% and in other stores by 10%. Michelle Mouth Harvey of the Environmental Defense Fund, who worked with Walmart on the goal, said this is significant. As we've moved to reliance on key locations like California and Florida, she said, we've made it very difficult for local farmers to actually get their food to market. As Walmart is is doing with consumer products, it will be asking agricultural producers questions about water, fertilizer, and chemical use. The eventual goal is to include that information in a sustainability index. Customers would see sustainability ratings so they could decide whether to choose one avocado over another based on how efficiently it was grown and shipped. Although I think in these times, if one's a nickel cheaper, that's going to make the difference. Walmart could use index information when it decided from whom to buy. Finally, the company announced specific guidelines for the sources of its products, including a requirement that palm oil from sustainable sources be used in all its private label products, the Walmart house brands, and that any beef it sold not have contributed to the deforestation of the Amazon region because of cattle ranch expansion. 
While the overall goals include Sam's Club, the warehouse store wing of Walmart, that division also has other specific goals, including a 15% increase in fair trade of Rainforest Alliance certified flowers and produce. The Agricultural Sustainability Index was particularly noteworthy, said one academic who worked with Walmart on the goals. The index represents a real number that will mean improvement on the ground, improving ecosystem health, soil health, and food quality, said Marty Matlock a professor of ecological engineering at the University of Arkansas, which will move agricultural producers en masse. Well, hooray for Walmart. Now, why don't you just organize your people and give them decent health care? Well, that's the end of our Scorpio-influenced uh, Radio Free Oz for today. Uh, uh-huh. David, uh, what Chinese poet will grace us here at the terminus of the show? Well, I've moved on a couple of hundred years, having, what is it, in 3,000, a couple of hundreds, barely moving along. This is um, a writer named Mai Yao Chen, who lived in the early 11th century, sometime oh, around 1050, let's say, this was written. Remember, this was dark medieval Europe while this guy's... Yeah, 1050, nothing was happening there. Guys were walking around hitting things with sticks. Come they on. Probably usually themselves. But what do you li- got here? But, well, this is really quite a movie, and it's it's moving, and uh, it's this is interesting. This is a poem called A Solitary Falcon Above the Buddha Hall of the Monastery of Universal purity. Okay. My newly rented home commands a view of the temple hall. Gold and jade green glitter before my crumbling house. I gaze at the temple and watch the flocks of pigeons bring food and drink to their nested young, unaware of the years drawing to a close. Bird droppings have dirtied all the carved eaves and painted walls and fallen on the heads and shoulders of clay-sculpted Buddhas. The monastery monks would never dare to shoot the birds with crossbows. But suddenly there comes a dark falcon bearing his dangerous claws. Crows caw, magpies screech, minor birds cry out. The falcon, excited, flies close in and catches the scent of flesh. Determination in his heart, outnumbered but unafraid, in a flash, he has crushed the head of a bird and terrified the others. The dead bird plunges in the void, has not yet reached the ground, when the falcon sweeps down with whirlwind wings and snatches him in mid-air. Alone on the rooftop, he freely rips and tears, pecks at the flesh, pulls at the liver, casts away the guts. The scavengers, with no skill of their own, crafty and cowardly, circle above, waiting to descend, staring with their hungry eyes. Soon the falcon has eaten his full and leisurely flies off. Who can distinguish kites from crows in the struggle for the leavings? All the children point and gesture. The passers-by laugh. While I thoughtfully intone my poem by the autumnal riverbank. Oh, what a lovely movie. Isn't that oh, that, that's, that's nothing at all like medieval Europe. Nobody's hitting anybody with a stick, you know, and nobody's going off on a children's crusade. They're just watching falcons do their thing. Yeah, well, we're doing our thing here on Radio Free Oz. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, co-host David Osman. What a good day. Tomorrow's going to be a good day because Oz is coming back at you when it happens.